1: Ce n'est pas possible. Je ne t'inquiète pas, mon amour. Il faudra pourtant que je parte. Tu sauras que moi. Je ne pense qu'à toi, mais je sais que toi, tu m'attends.
2: Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary.
0: I don't like operas.
2: Also with us this week is Mr. Kenneth Robert Stanley. May I call you
3: KRS-One? Can't stop. Won't stop you calling me that. You can call me Teacher, too, if you want.
2: Can I call you Kenny, baby? Uh, Let's
3: not get carried away.
2: This week we are talking about The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Released in 1964, it's the second of a very loose trilogy of films from director Jacques Demy. The film is a wall-to-wall musical in which every line of dialogue is sung. It's the story of two young lovers, Guy and Genevieve, who are torn apart by war and the forces of family impropriety. It's also one of the most bittersweet films that I've ever seen. Of course, we're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode, though there's not a whole lot to spoil as the song Says It's a tale as old as time, but I would highly encourage everyone listening to watch the film. That said, Rob, when was the first time you saw Umbrellas of
0: Cherbourg, and what did you think? I think it was maybe 10, 12 years ago. There was a restoration done, and I want to believe that maybe it was uh, Scorsese or somebody who helped put the money together to get it done. And it played at the Detroit Film Theater. That was the first time I saw it, and then I've seen it on uh, uh, home video, DVD. Many times since, and uh, it is the one film that I can think of that always makes me cry. Yes, I'm admitting that tough guy over here uh, cries at this film. So, yes, yes. As long as you don't dance, because
2: I hear tough guys don't dance.
0: No, sorry.
2: In fact, I heard 10 hours
0: about tough guys don't dance. Well, and, and I hear we don't eat quiche either, but, you know, sometimes.
3: How about you, Ken? Damn! Actually, I feel like I've seen this film for the first time on four or five different occasions. I've had a lifelong romance with this movie, if you will. Uh, first time was during the intermission periods of the hockey game I was watching. Channel fifty-six was showing art house films at that point in time, so I switched over to see what they were showing that week. And it just struck me as being a little odd, then a little funny, then when I switched over a second intermission. It seemed intriguing, so I made a mental note to see it. And it's like long before the internet, home video, satellite or cable TV, so you had to keep your eyes open and your ears to the ground if you're going to catch something like this. So four or five years later, it was in Ann Arbor. One of the film societies uh, put it on in a classroom. It was a 16 millimeter print, scratchy, colors were washed out. Uh, good luck trying to read the subtitles on the thing, muddy sound, small speakers. So I really didn't feel like I actually seen it then either until the restoration Rob was referring to in 2004. So it was like a distance of 30 years between seeing bits and pieces and bad prints of this thing. And that felt like the first time I saw the film, but I thought it was a little twee for my taste. My idea of a musical is Don't Look Back, the Dylan documentary or uh, A Hard Day's Night. And I wasn't big on romance films. It wasn't until later. I think I got a little more mature as time went on and watched the movie on its own terms. I've had like a lifelong relationship with it since then. It's an open relationship. I mean, I can still see other movies and I can't stop other people from seeing it, but I don't think I'll ever break up with it.
2: I don't remember the first time that I saw this movie. I remember it blew my socks off whenever it was. I want to say it might have been like CBC was showing uh, foreign films and I might have caught it then. It seems like I saw it right around the same time that I saw Toto the Hero, which I know for sure that I saw on a television broadcast with uh, commercial free. Thank goodness. So it was uh, a regular VHF channel. And yeah, this movie just seems to have kind of always been there. It must have been late nineties, maybe when I saw it for the first time. And like Rob was saying, I can't really watch this movie without breaking down and bawling. So it's not necessarily a movie that I go back to all the time, but whenever there's an opportunity to see it, I will either leave it on or I will turn it on and I I'm kind of envious of you guys because I've never seen this on the big screen, and I imagine that it is just completely uh,
0: overwhelming to see on the big screen. Oh, I mean, for me, the, um, the Technicolor is just amazing. It is such a beautiful film. It uses color in such a beautiful way. And just all the aspects of the visual in here is, is quite remarkable. What's well, so
2: saturated, and it, it's it's funny because two weeks ago uh, we talked about uh, Dick Tracy on the show, which was all just primary colors like right out of a comic strip, and this is almost like the the pastel equivalent of that because it's just all of these beautiful beautiful colors. I mean, just the the wallpaper inside of the umbrella shop, I could just sit there and watch that all day long. It just is gorgeous.
0: And the other thing with it tonally when it comes to the color is interesting because there's one scene you were talking about the various wallpapers. There's a scene where she has a dress that looks almost like the wallpaper and it's a different shade of blue. And I think in sort of lesser hands, all those blues would have kind of blended together and have been like a floating head. But uh, they were smart enough to, uh, to figure out the color palettes to make it work. Yeah, it was no garden state.
3: The style of the film, the whole idea that it's totally sung, the supersaturation of the colors like you were talking about. I believe that there is an intention here. And this is a limb that I'm going to go out on and, you know, bring me down if it's too far. But uh, I believe that Demi was trying to make a film from the location, not a physical location, but the psychological or mental location of the state of mind of being in love. The film is set there and it plays out there. You know, neuroscientists and physiologists tell us that we have an altered state of mind when we're in that state of love. And I think he's trying to replicate that or simulate that. You're super sensitive when you're in that state of mind of being in love. Everything seems more vibrant. Uh, everything you say and sing and hear sounds like music. And I think that that may be the reason why it's so stylistically out there a little bit.
0: And I would agree with that, and I would say that also that heightened sense of reality is where the sort of opera form comes in. I don't necessarily like calling this a musical, at least in the American context, because when we think of a musical, I mean, it's like a bunch of dialogue scene, and then someone sings, and then a bunch of dialogue, and another song comes up. That's sort of the American standard that came from Broadway of a musical. This is much more in line with an opera, and it's funny in the beginning because he's taking her to an opera to go see Carmen, so there's this uh connection in that way that uh, Demi plays with uh, the idea of opera, and then at the same time, it's funny to hear the the guys in the auto shop with him going, "Oh, I like film, I go see a movie. <laughs> I wouldn't go to the opera so there's also I think another uh, aspect of uh, what opera in here stands for, and we'll get into that in a little bit
3: I think that people if they want to make a monument of their feelings they They want to see it done in a uh, form that transcends regular communication. And that's usually art in one way or another. Uh, It's not, hey, I'm in love and everything, but it's not like everyone else's love. This is my love. It's fantastic. It's monumental. Therefore, I got to sing it. People relate to pop songs that way. If you find a pop song on the radio that you like, that you relate to, you sing along with it because it represents how you feel. And it transcends normal communication by transcending it in an art form. Makes it stand up and above regular quotidian feelings. I will agree with you, Ken. The first time that I saw this, I was
2: kind of off-put initially just by the singing and just that wall-to-wall singing. I mean, it's... Hilarious to me that it starts off in an auto shop, which is the most unromantic place that I think you possibly could set a musical. Also ironic that uh, Demi's father ran an auto shop, so he definitely knew what he was talking about when he kind of uh, put it in this place. And yeah, to have these typically kind of tough or, or brusque guys. You know, my dad was a or stepdad was an auto mechanic, and I can't necessarily picture him uh, singing everything that he says to all of the customers and the customers responding in song as well. And that's one of the things that I like too is that Everybody is in this musical. It's not just our two main characters plus maybe a few friends. Everyone from the postman on down is involved in this musical. Everything is sung. So there's no just kind of, you know, uh, throwaway lines here or there. Even when Guy is walking out of the auto shop and he's like, you know, I'll see you tomorrow. He's singing. Uh, Adoma, I'll see you tomorrow and it's just like, wow it it really took me a few minutes to kind of get into the logic and the feel of this movie uh, because it it could initially be kind of off-putting but then once I kind of Bought into it. I was there with it the whole time, and I like the way that the music kind of plays uh, against what's going on. I mean, these are not typical. Uh, to your point, Rob, this is is much more operatic. This isn't like a verse chorus verse type of musical. I mean, even uh, like a Vita or Jesus Christ Superstar. It's not like you know we're going to be because those are sung beginning to end but those are very distinct songs and we definitely have verse chorus verse kind of set up inside of those things and in this is just the way that the music plays against what people are saying is fascinating and, and the, even in that opening the way that the music changes when he starts to talk about Carmen they play you know a little bit of Carmen in the music and then when one guy talks about what is it going to a, a jazz bar or something the music changes again for him so so it's, it's neat the way that the music follows the characters along as well as kind of
3: pushing them along with the uh, the, the songs. You can also find that, for example, the different relationships in the film are the way Legrand scores it. Madame Memory and her daughter Geneviève, they have a more contentious or more moments of contentiousness between them. The music's more staccato in those sections. And when Guy and Geneviève are alone together, these long note whole notes, these long musical phrases, everything is languid.
0: It's also a difference I see between uh, the styles of music in that in the auto shop and Gee alone, there seems to be much more jazz, which is... Um, I would say that the low art, not low meaning bad, but just, you know, the common. And then when you get into the, the daughter and the family, it's much more classical styled. So it's, and, and I even think the use of opera to a certain extent in the opera itself is a way to show higher class and, you know, watching, Uh, This film this time, which I wasn't, you know, when I was watching it before, I wasn't trying to dissect it and find all the parts, you know, all the little intricacies, but this time really started to realize a lot more of the class struggle in here, a lot more of the working class versus the owners or the bourgeois and, or at least trying to keep appearances of the bourgeois And how that really is also this other struggle that's in here beyond just sort of uh, the facts of war and life and and everything else that comes along with it.
3: The class struggle, that's one of the major subtexts of the film. Um, The main characters, they both go upward class-wise, but they're still not at a parallel level. And I read one commentator say that the romance is doomed from the start because of that very fact. Yeah, it's it's kind of a Romeo and Juliet thing
2: if it was uh Romeo from the wrong side of the tracks.
0: Well, I mean the whole thing for me is uh, definitely the the Romeo and Juliet aspect and then I find it interesting that that the mother uh what happens is um the the two are seeing each other, the mother finds out and then is like, "Yeah, I don't want you hanging out with this auto mechanic." And there's sort of this mix of I I get sort of this idea that there's a mix of learn from my past mistake with your father who's now dead and sort of how I lived my life. And then there's also this striving aspect where it's like, I don't want you to marry an auto mechanic. I want you to be with this guy because he's got money and he'll be able to take care of you. So there's this whole sort of striving aspect in which uh, the the Roland character who's the the diamond the young diamond broker that she goes to basically an upscale pawn shop is sort of what I put in my notes um, to try and sell that I think it's a pearl necklace to try and pay off her taxes that she's in the arrears on because the umbrella shop isn't doing so well which pearls also could be uh, and I don't know if it's the same in in French culture, but but I've always was told that like pearls is one of those um, symbolic pieces of jewelry that is given to women when they become mothers. So maybe this is some sort of, you know, extra level symbol on her sort of doing away in a particular way with her motherhood as the girl ends up becoming a mother.
3: I know Jacques Demy films very well. I become a fan of his and he's so meticulous and intricate about every last detail that I'm sure that if it's pearls it's it's there for a reason. If he would have made any other choice, it would have been there for a reason. I love how absolutely
2: cinematic this film is. I mean we've talked about you know, it has to be cinematic with with the use of the the wall to wall music the use of the wall to walls singing, but even more than that, just like the use of the title cards I mean we get several title cards through here we have the film being split up into three major parts and then we get kind of extra titles on top of that when it comes to the month and the year and especially during the third act I mean we just, we're moving through time very very quickly and it's like okay now here's April, now here's May now here's June, now here's four years later and we're just getting all of these cards throughout uh, telling us what the month and year is for this uh, goings but then even more than that, catching those moments where Geneviève and Guy are going down the street and they're not walking. They're just kind of being dollied down the street. And I just love those kind of magical moments that they have where we're seeing them, as you were saying, Ken, they're completely in love. Their feet don't even touch the ground, as it were, as they're going down the street.
3: I love that moment. I think that is absolutely gorgeous. I see uh, the title cards. I think also there's a lot of literary devices going on. Demi was very much a classicist and a formalist. So you'll see uh, foreshadowing. You'll see metaphor. You'll see mirroring. You'll see uh, there's a lot of pairs of different things. I see the the main conflict. There's two groups of three people in these two different groups. There's Team Gee which is comprised of Guy, Antelise, and the caretaker, Madeleine. Then there's Team Genevieve, which is Genevieve, Madame Emery, and, in a sense, the caretaker, Roland Cassard. By the end of the movie, we find out that both of the matriarchs have died, leaving the other two in each group to marry each other. Genevieve has a daughter named Françoise. Guy has a son named Francois. There's different things, like you can see... The story elements, you can see story elements during the opening credits. It's very subtle, but you see different, the people who pass by with their umbrellas, a soldier arm and arm, a sailor arm and arm with a young lady, uh, guys walking their bicycle across the screen, someone pushing a baby carriage. These are all elements that pop up in the film at some point or other, and they're all in the opening credit sequence. Like I said, Demi is very meticulous. You got Roland Kassar driving his uh, Mercedes into the garage at the beginning. And that's at the beginning of the film. And at the very end of the film, Genevieve drives that same Mercedes into Guy's gas station. There's two different Genevieve's. There's the Genevieve and then the courtesan that uh, Guy spends the night with. A lot of different mirroring, mirroring things. There's a scene at the altar when Genevieve and Roland get married. There's a scene at an altar where Guy and uh, Madeleine are there to for the funeral service for Aunt Elise. So it's, this is a really well-connected de- design film all the way around. Well, and even
2: literal mirrors. There are so many literal mirrors in this movie. I remember yes, there's one yes, part. Yes. I can't remember it's, if it's when we're finding out that Genevieve is is pregnant, where she's singing to her mother, and it's her mother's reflection in the mirror that we're seeing. And it's just... Just gorgeously shot. I love the way that this is put together. And even going back to the uh, the night that Guy and Genevieve uh, consummate their relationship, how we see them going through town and seeing all of these different locations. And then I love once they go up to Guy's room, we kind of get those locations just one shot here, one shot there, going back in reverse to uh, Geneviève's, uh, mother and the way that she comes in and she's so upset and everything. And it just, you know, it's, it's great storytelling that we have, uh, with all of this stuff as
3: well. Well, there's also, you mentioned a montage of shots there. That's reflexive. The movie is reflexive of not just other Demi films, but of other movies as well. You mentioned the gliding shot. That's a direct reference to uh, beauty and the beast, the Cocteau film. So there's several different little things like that that pop up here and there.
2: Talking about Beauty and the Beast, I mean, this movie, we've... Hit so many fairy tale films this year for whatever it is, whatever reason they got programmed this way. There are so many fairy tales that we've discussed in 2016 on the Projection Booth. Rob, even the last episode you were on when it came to House, there were references to fairy tales in that. And in here, I think Viove's mother calls her the fairest of them all. And when she, they take the uh, jewels to Roland, there's a mention of uh, the jewels of Sleeping Beauty and and uh, again with the uh, beauty and the beast reference the the Cocteau which I know that Demi was a huge fan of Cocteau and yeah it's just throughout this and then you even get into the point where you're talking about the uh, the the two teams of people I mean, really, this is almost like two princes that are kind of vying for the same hand between Roland and Guy, and um, you know, obviously, you have, we know who wins with this, but it—that's it, the tragedy and that's the the moral of the story. And I, I, I think that kind of playing with fairy tales also helps when it comes to elevating this into more into that dream world that you are talking about.
3: Demi would later go on to. To make films of Donkey Skin, which is a, a literal a fairy tale, and The Pied Piper. And he would also do a film a retelling of the Orpheus legend. So he was never very far away from the field of uh, fairy tales and legends and myths. I'm curious as far as you talked about uh, Roland.
2: Is- He kind of enters into the story. He enters into the story before Guy leaves for the war, I believe. But Guy pretty quickly gets drafted into the Algerian uh, revolution uh, or the conflict, I should say. He's not part of the revolution, he's part of the problem. And, you know, Roland. Somehow, I don't know if, again, if it goes back to class or not, I would think that it does. He seems to be exempt from that. He is definitely not going off to war, so he's there left in the home front uh, to kind of woo Geneviève, and uh, really he's just being set up by the mother so much to to be that perfect prince for her princess.
3: I think the implication is, is that he is supposed to be a little older. The thing is, the Roland Cassard character was first seen in Demi's first film, played by the same actor, uh, his first film, Lola. And I don't recall right offhand whether or not he was eligible for the service then or or not. So that is an interesting point. It could be class.
0: I definitely get that it's a class issue, but I also get age-wise because we're led to believe that she's 16, he's 20 – And I want to put this guy at maybe 25. He just seems a little bit older than the others. And it's also interesting. uh, Here's the connection back to the first film, which I'll admit uh, I have not seen. Um, the, The character of Roland says that he was once in love with Lola. So therefore, there's your connection.
3: Actually, in Lola, the movie could have just as easily been called Roland as it was Lola. Because he's a primary character in that film. But it's interesting that there are several plot elements in, in his uh, role in Lola that carry over to Umbrellas of Sherborg. In Lola, he meets, makes acquaintances with a mother and daughter tandem. Uh, he's standing in a bookshop and they're looking to find a French-English dictionary. The bookshop owner doesn't have one, so he uh, you know, lets them have his. So he says, I'll give you mine. And so he kind of like comes to the rescue there. Uh, in Umbrellas of Sherborg, he's overhearing about meta memories, financial problems, and he steps in and saves the day there too. So it's like that connection is made about his character. Also in Lola, uh, Lola is an unwed mother and he offers to marry her. And in, of course, in Umbrellas of Sherborg, he actually marries what would have been an unwed mother. So that character connection is there. It's consistent. You know, We talked about how this movie,
2: or I mentioned how this movie kind of feels like it's been in my life the whole time. And when I watched the film the first time, when Geneviève starts to sing I Will Wait For You, which was you know, one of the two big songs that came out of the film, I thought for sure that it was a classical piece that had been kind of uh, reinterpreted for, as uh, as her theme in the film because I was so familiar with it. I, I I thought for sure that I must have heard this at another point. And then even when uh, Roland's theme, the, uh, the, the song Watch What Happens, when that starts up, again, I felt like it was just so much a part of what I had grown up with, and and just it felt like I'd heard that song so many times before, and I figured it had to have been a classical motif that was kind of put into this. But no, what I finally figured out recently is that both of those songs were <laughs> covered by uh, tons of people, uh, most notably Frank Sinatra, but for me, my mom is a huge fan of the crooners, like Robert Coulet and Johnny Mathis, Mario Lanza. And both of those songs were on, uh, I had to go back and double check, they were on... Johnny Mathis albums that she owned. So I grew up with these songs and had no recollection when I'm hearing them in their original context in French. I'm just like, God, these are so familiar. Why do I know this? So It's just (laughs) kind of funny to me that these songs ended up being such torch songs and so popular that, you know, even going out and finding like, you know, Sergio Mendez had covered these, uh, covered at least one of these songs. It's like, this is amazing how much this had been part of you know, popular
3: culture before I was even ever properly even introduced to it. I think the reason that the music makes such a big impact is the fact that for me, anyhow, they provide most of the emotion in the film. I don't think the performances are bad, but Catherine Deneuve in an interview said she felt constricted in her role uh, because of the lip syncing that she had to do. And I think that applies to most of the performances. I think the only dynamic character in the film really is Madame Emery. She's the only one who's telling somebody, hey, get snap out of it, you know. So her performance to me is the strongest, but she's given more to do emotionally. Most of the characters walk around in a very, with a very narrow, a relatively narrow emotive state. When they're ecstatic and happy, they smile. Uh, when they're sad, they pout, you know, Uh but it's the music that provides the emotion, I think, for the most part, because of the constriction of the acting due to the lip-syncing, if that makes sense. It's
2: so rare that they're happy, though. I mean, they're happy at the beginning, but once that letter arrives – I mean, and I'm not even talking about uh, talking about another uh, mirroring. The letter that arrives for um, uh, Geneviève's mom, that puts a spin on it, but the letter that arrives for Guy that tells him that he's being drafted into the Algerian War – that is, I mean, that's the end. I mean, that, that, that's when the sadness
3: starts. Oh, really? Even I, I think that there's only one real scene where they're happy, and that's, you know, going to the opera and then going to the jazz club afterwards. That's it. From that point forward, the next scene that Guy and Genevieve see each other is when he breaks the news, he has, he has to go to the army. So it is a very short window of happiness in the film.
0: And this is like the whole kind of thematics of it. The whole thing seems to be this battle between the ideal and the real. And then this question of circumstance where if he hadn't have had to go to the war, maybe things would have worked out and mom kind of would have cooled off and everything would have been all right. So, So there's a question of circumstance, but it's like each individual – character that's in here talks about their own experience with love and they're balancing it against the ideal of what they would like versus well this is what I have to accept or this is the best option to me you know the mother talks about her And her relationship with her now deceased, uh, Genevieve's now deceased father, uh, doesn't seem all that excited about it. Roland's kind of like, well, I really love Lola, but that didn't work out. So I think this would, you know, this would be good. Um, You can definitely see Guy and Madeline kind of negotiate (laughs) what eventually is going to be their relationship. And one of the most heartbreaking scenes of the film for me. Yeah, and then when you get to the end, there's this whole thing where they have both set up their lives. And one thing that I noticed, and, I, and this is one of those things again, where it, it's a visual thing that I noticed this time watching it, but maybe it was there before and I noticed it, but it really looking for it is how the characters, um, there's a certain sort of looseness in the very beginning for them. But by the time they get to the end, they're very much buttoned down. And one sort of sure sign of this is Catherine Deneuve's hair keeps getting higher up and tighter on her head. (laughs) Um, When in the beginning, her hair's down. She's all very fun. When she finds out she's pregnant, it's pulled back. And by the time she shows up at the gas station at the end, it's all wrapped up. So it's like she is confined. I have confined myself into this. And I get the feeling that even if they could in the very end run off together, it's impossible. Like whatever they had when they were 16 and 20, you can't recapture it as as much as you would like to. It just seems that what, what, what I get from this as like all great operas and dramatic pieces is this question of how do we negotiate the questions of circumstance and this whole thing of the ideal versus the real. And, and can we be happy in the end, because I think the only the, the only people that come close to happiness in the end, I actually think is him and his wife. I think if anyone, I don't think Catherine Deneuve's character is happy at all. Uh, she seems very miserable. But I think that him with his little gas station and his family, while it's not perfect, it's not exactly what he thought was going to be. It's OK. It's not the greatest thing ever, and it's not the worst thing ever. They've
2: settled I think both of them have settled. You know, she had to settle for Roland because she's pregnant and alone and wants somebody, and Roland is there like an umbrella in the storm, and she ends up settling for him. And then Guy ends up settling for Madelon. I mean, Madelon had been the caretaker for you know Aunt Elise, and now she's basically the caretaker caretaker for Guy, who came back from the war with. I would say he came back with PTSD because he seems really fucked up when he comes back. He has mm-hmm. no way of readjusting to the world. He loses his job. He goes out whoring. You know, he just is a drinker now. And, you know, it was very unshaven when he was very tight before and always looked very good. But yeah, it feels like, yeah, both of them have settled, which I think to me is, is one of the saddest things. And that's why I'm, you know, weeping at the end of the film.
3: I hate to spoil this for you guys, but, uh, Demi, As his original plan, when he first started out as a filmmaker, he said he wanted to make 50 films that would have 50 characters intersecting throughout. That's why he got Roland Cassard in Lola and Umbrellas of Sherbrooke, and there'd be other things that would happen. Within his first five films, he managed to keep that idea intact. Guy was originally slated to be a character in the next film, Young Girls of Rochefort, except he would be without his wife and child. And he would become a carny. So I think that also, if you notice at the end of these films, all of them, there's no title card that says Fino or the end. I think that's intentional. I think that's to give you the impression that these stories are in flux and these characters' lives are in flux and changes are possible.
2: You know, Rob, that was a really good point with the hair. But I have to say that this is six years out from the beginning of the film is when we see her in that. What is she, is she wearing a fur coat? It almost feels like she's wearing a fur coat
3: to and me she is, at the she end. Is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. Six years from the beginning of the film. So if she's 16 at the beginning, she's only 22 now and she already looks like a matron. Yeah. And it's, oh. it's just amazing how the transformation that she goes through. Yeah. I was
0: going to say that she looks hor- like, like this is the thing. Like, I don't know if it is, um, like a self-perception issue or if this is a film thing or even like a photo thing. But I have at times looked at photos of people and it's like, this person's 30 years old and like, Oh my God, they look horrible. And I think, do I look that bad? You know, like I have a perception of myself as younger than I am. And, and then I look at, um, at her and this, and it's definitely, um, you know, he's aged her. I mean, she, it almost looks like she's in mourning to a certain extent. I mean, I just, I, I just feel a real, uh, sense of coldness and, and sense of sort of, well, I guess I'm a kept woman and, nah, so be it.
2: Well, and then that it's his child that she's driving around in the car really kind of puts a fine point on it. Just, you know, amplifies the sadness for me of just, you know, basically Roland has been, you know, settled the cuckoo. You know, just having to take care of this child that isn't even his. And then, yeah, when she delivers her whole thing, when she comes into the office and and delivers her, song about why she's there and how this happened and everything to your point earlier, Ken, I mean, it is just, it's kind of dead and I can, I can see her being restricted by the the lip sync and everything, but I can also see her in this character and this being a very purposeful decision that she is very much almost without affect. And it just, you know, this is where I'm at. This is where I'm going. This is why I'm here. I better leave this. The, you know, I think he tells her that she better leave. Well,
3: there's nothing physically demonstrative that any of the characters do. No, there's not a malevolent character in the film. Nobody, everybody just, I think would, if they sat around together, all six of them, they would all want what's best for each one of them. You don't have a, someone you could point to as a villain and there's nothing really all that demonstrative emotionally, physically done I don't. Genevieve faints once, I think, uh, and she runs a couple times. But there's nothing really like, damn it, do this! You know, I mean, there's <laughs> nobody who does anything like that, you know? So so that's what plays into the idea that uh, they're in a trance,
0: almost. There's the piece where she's not feeling very well, and then eventually she explains to her mom, yeah, I'm pregnant and all this. And then she's still having, like, she's not sleeping well and things like that. And I wrote in my notes, this is when she finally warms up. And I put that in quotes uh, to to Roland. I write down in my notes, I feel horrible. Maybe I should make a big life decision. <laughs> yeah, that's the perfect time to make a big decision about your life. When you feel horrible.
3: I also like, as an aside, I think it's kind of funny when uh, Madame Emery, uh, in a bit of uh, lyric or whatever, will, will refer to... Genevieve is looking horrible because <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's, it's so hysterical. You're not ugly, dear. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, she's definitely gone from
2: the fairest of them all to something else completely.
3: Yeah, I, I read one commentator describe Catherine Deneuve in this film as being impossibly beautiful. I tend to agree. <laughs> I tend to find her impossibly
2: beautiful in everything that she's in, even when she's made to look quote-unquote ugly i mean even when she's getting <laughs> dirt thrown in her face
3: and belle de jour she's gorgeous she's always gorgeous <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah yeah it's a gorgeous dirty Catherine Deneuve scene yeah but that plays into the whole idea of like r- what rob was saying idealism all the characters are Guy is handsome roland cassard's handsome madeline for a second option come on you know she's <laughs> she's very attractive too you know yeah, you could do way worse. Yeah.
0: You could Well, I mean, you could do way worse. And then on top of it, I mean, she is a caretaker. I mean, she's you know that she'll take care of you. You know, like if you're sick, you know, someone's going to make you dinner. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, she she's nice and she's a good person. So you get that. I actually kind of feel kind of bad for her because it seems like she's settling for this guy. who's kind of like, yeah, well, I guess. But she really has a shine to him when he comes back. She's like, oh, he's here, and kind of like undoes her hair and tries to be a little flirty and everything. So you get the feeling that she's always been idealizing gee. So these sort of multiple layers of idealism and then sort of settling, and then it just it makes you sad.
3: The one moment in the film that I think a character can be uh, perceived as being maybe a little bit conniving, maybe a little bit manipulative, is when we see Madeline across the street from the church after uh, Genevieve and Rowan has just gotten got married and they get into their limousine, uh, camera cuts to her, and she's got this look on her face. It's like, why is she there? To make sure this is going to happen, to find out that it's actually happening? And she has a look on her face that suggests that, aha, now I've gotten upper hand on Geek. And it's just a very brief thing, and... It's one of the better moments of acting in the film, I think, because it's just a look, but it's a mysterious little look.
2: Yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, what I have in my notes is that when this film ends, they are all living lives of quiet desperation. And it just, between that and the strains of I will wait for you, just, yeah, it just tears my heart out every single time.
3: Well, Rob also brought up uh, these Coincidences, chance encounters, what could have been, what would have been, uh, that type of thing. And I think that all of us as the audience members can relate to those ideas. And that's, I think, what the ending of the film really brings up in full flourish.
0: And, you know, kind of looping back on this idea of this is a heightened reality and getting your head around the heightened reality. um, All the stuff that leads up to Guy finally... Getting together with Madeline in a way is kind of like, uh, once again, this mirroring thing of how everything falls apart for Genevieve and she feels terrible. And it's like, I feel terrible. Let's make a big bad life decision. <laughs> is when Guy decides to get together with uh, Madeline, he loses his job. He feels bad. He goes drinking. He goes to visit, uh, you know, the, the prostitute and then his aunt dies. So I write, worst day ever. You have- <laughs> You have no family. So, uh, that's the other thing that I noticed too is that, uh, both of our leads, the lovers, are both without family in a traditional, like, nuclear family sense. In that, you know, uh, husband and wife, you know, mom and dad. Um, so it, it seems to me that both of them, uh, thirst and hunger for this idea of, well, we don't have that. So let's build that thing. Let's, let's try and build of a family of what a family really is. Because, you know, she just has her mom and he has her aunt. You know, he has his aunt and his aunt's sick. So it's like neither of them actually really have a family.
3: Well the absence of a parent is runs rampant throughout Demi's films. There in every single film of uh, father left, there's a divorce, someone died, you you never see any individual who only has one parent or who has both parents they always have either one parent or no parent and that's the rule of thumb in in the first five films anyhow
0: so this is this is his uh sort of thematic that runs through his work the much the same way that spielberg has daddy issues
3: One of many themes that he constantly goes back to. Well, and Ken, you mentioned the uh, sailors in in Cherbourg, and
2: I was just like, wow, you know, Demi likes sailors almost as much as Kenneth Anger does. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, they're all over the place. Young Girls of Rochefort is a it's a sailor fest. It's (laughs) there's they're all over the place.
2: And even at the beginning of Lola, there's the sailors that are, are, you know. Coming across the street that the guy in the cowboy hat almost hit. Yes, yes. Well, speaking of that, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with Anne Duggan, author of Queer Enchantments, Gender, Sexuality, and Class in the Fairy Tale Cinema of Jacques Demy. The second is with Guy himself, Nino Castelnovo. Now, this is a first for the projection booth, as Mr. Castelnuovo speaks a little English, but I was helped to translate by his agent, Simone Opie, so you'll hear both of those interviews after these brief messages.
0: Hey, are you a jock that likes comics? Are you a nerd that likes comics? Do you feel left out sometimes? Well, then we've got the show for you. I'm Imran. And I'm Anthony. He's the jock. And he's the nerd. And we host the Jock and Nerd podcast at jockandnerd.com. If you're looking for fun, entertaining, laugh-out-loud geek chat over all the latest Marvel, DC shows and news, visit jockandnerd.com full spoiler podcast lots of swearing uh you're such a jock you're such a nerd oh come on shut up nerd okay hey projection booth listeners i'm chris stashu a writer and
4: i'm sean liang an actor and we are the hosts of the culture cast twice a week sean and i sit down and talk movies new and old often centered around monthly genres. We also talked
1: with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. (laughs) Our guests truly span the gamut of film.
5: We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us
4: on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack Classic 2012. So if you're looking to fill the time between Projection Booth podcasts with more film musings, Then check out the CultureCast. That's Culture with a K on any podcast apps, iTunes, or over at cultureshop.com slash CultureCast.
5: It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the 7-Hour Conan episode, the 6-Hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's PATREON.com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's twelve dollars a year. At least fifty great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
1: This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at proudlyresents.com, and you are listening to my favorite, the number one. The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show. You lucky son of a gun.
6: Anne Duggan, and I'm a professor of French literature at Wayne State University.
2: Now, you're also the director of gender, sexuality, and women's
6: studies programs I actually was director for four years, and then um, as of last year, fall 2014, I'm chair of a big, huge language department. So now I'm chair of classical and modern languages, literatures, and cultures.
2: So you kind of specialize in fairy tales. Yes. How did you get into that?
6: So when I was a graduate student, I took a class with Jack Site in the early 90s, and he's done a lot of work on on fairy tales on french fairy tales german fairy tales and so i started working with him worked on my dissertation with him but i also got the chance to work on the as a research assistant in grad school i was his graduate assistant for the oxford companion to the fairy tale so i ended up just knowing a lot about all different kinds of tale traditions not just the french tradition but german Italian, English, Irish, the whole shebang. <laughs> Most of my work is on French language tales, but I also edit a journal, Marvels and Tales, which is a journal of fairy tale studies. Fairy tale studies is very comparative. People tend to know, like researchers will, even if you work on French tales, you will know the German versions of tales and the Italian versions of tales. So it ends up being a really interdisciplinary comparative field.
2: How did you decide to write about Jacques Demy?
6: It's really funny because it totally took me out of my comfort area because I'm also trained as an early modern French scholar. So originally, you know, I did most of my work in 17th century France and I worked with women writers, women fairy tale writers, um, salon writers, and, and the women who wrote fairy tales in the 17th century They wrote them within the context of the French Salon, and and fairy tales were written from poor adults, and it was a very aristocratic genre. I had been working on that, and at Wayne State, a group of us, Don Hazo, who's also done a a lot of work on fairy tales, um, Janet Langlois, uh, she's a folklorist, and myself, we had a fairy tale research group. And one of the graduate students with us, Deborah Peterson, uh, she was our film person, and so she actually kind of introduced me to Jacques Demy's Donkey Skin. I kind of started approaching him through fairy tales, but then I found Donkey Skin initially. So I was like, "What do I do with this film? It's too weird in some ways," and and I I wasn't sure how to approach it. So I ended up just watching all of his films, and I fell in love. <laughs> And then I thought he was doing really interesting things with fairy tales.
2: Tell me more about how you kind of approach his films. Donkey Skin was your first. I, apparently that made quite an impression on you.
6: I think Jimmy made a big impression on me. And, and I realized, and I guess I talk about this in the introduction of my book, that the two things that don't get... It gets mentioned in passing or it, it'll get a mention, you know, there might be one article in on it here, one there... The two things is the influence the fairy tale had on him and the other thing is the queer aesthetics of his films. As I was examining his films, I just realized how much even in Lola and the Umbrellas of Cherbourg there's these little fairy tale references. Um, I think Jean Pierre Berthomet in his book on Demi talks about the extent to which Demi was influenced by fairy tales and as a child he had created a little theater, a puppet theater above his father's garage, and he created fairy tale plays as a child. So I found that interesting that even as a child he he was interested in donkey skin in particular, but the fairy tale genre in general. I believe early on he did and I, I never could access that. I would love to he has a short that's a fairy tale film that he started doing an animated fairy tale film that he would use when he was looking for jobs working in the film industry before he was actually set up as a filmmaker.
2: With Lola, that's what, 1961. And I'm trying to remember if we, you know, cause of, of course to me, the French new wave really starts with uh, breathless. So we're right there with breathless and Lola. Was he really considered kind of a new wave filmmaker?
6: The way that film critics tend to talk about him is he's always on the border. He's always on the margins of the new wave. And and I actually think Lola is maybe one of his most new wave looking films, although he didn't want it to look that way because he wanted to make it in color and he wanted it to be a musical. I mean, he was connected with Godard, Beauregard, who produced Breathless, also produced Lola. So they have these professional connections with each other. Of course, Denis, I think, obviously has a very different kind of aesthetic that sets him apart from Truffaut and Godard and Louis Mal and and that group. But I suppose what would connect him is a kind of self-reflexive, and I think the way he uses musicals. There is that kind of reflexivity that we find in, in French New Wave films. I think that Denis has never quite taken as seriously as the other New Wave directors. In part, his aesthetics just don't look cool enough. You know, they seem goofy, silly, maybe even feminine. But I think that he's more complicated as a filmmaker than people have given him credit for, with few exceptions.
2: You, know, you talked about the, the queering of his work and the queering of the, the fairy tales, and the name of your book is Queer Enchantments. Can you kind of explain what you mean by the, the queering of this?
6: When I first viewed Donkey Skin, one of the things that came up with my research group is that there's something campy about the film. And I guess that that's what was kind of what got me, well, how do I approach this fairy tale film? Because you don't think of a fairy tale... I mean, I guess you can... Very easily, camp a fairy tale. But it started with the research group thinking about the idea of, of camp. But then, the more I read about Demi, the more I realized how much he had an impact on French queer directors like Francois Ouzon. A lot of gay Frenchmen, there's an appeal. His films have almost, especially um, Les Demoiselles de Rochefort, has almost a cult status in the gay community. So there's something that's appealing to the gay community in his films. And then the more I did research on queer theory and queer aesthetics, it just seemed very clear to me that there's so much going on from a queer perspective. I mean, even he was very influenced by Jean Cocteau. And Jean Cocteau was basically as much out as you could be in the, in the forties, thirties, forties, fifties. And Cocteau's partner was Jean Marais I don't think it's a coincidence that one of Demi's earliest, one of his shorts called Le Bede Indifférent, and I'm not sure what it's called in English, the beautiful and different one or something like that. I would call it a very gay film in some ways, or, or it has a gay aesthetic to it. And it's a script by Cocteau that, that Demi filmed. And then just having these recurrences in a couple of his films of Jean Marais is almost a gay intertext in the film. But I think also he plays on gender a lot. Like, I mean, there's the obvious example of a slightly pregnant man where Marcello Mastroianni, he sees himself as, I mean, the the roles, there's this role reversal where he's pregnant and his wife is wondering how he got pregnant, but that's really, it's gender-bending. It's totally gender-bending, this whole idea of a pregnant man. Even if in the end of the film we find out he's not pregnant, it kind of doesn't matter anymore because we've seen Mastoriani as this pregnant man who's mediatized and everything. But then he, he keeps returning to these kinds of things like in Lady Oscar where she grows up as a woman who's identified as a as a man too. I mean, there's something transsexual about the character Lady Oscar. Sometimes it's more explicit and sometimes I think it's, it's less explicit like the idea that Roland, for instance, um, in his appeal to older women in both The Umbrellas of Sherberg and in Lola, this idea that the younger man with the the older woman is also something we see in gay films like Fassbender. Fassbender brings together the idea of both race and, and this age, the younger man with the older woman which some queer theorists, they'll talk about Sunset Boulevard is having that, that that's one way of expressing a queer relationship. I think that queer relationships get figured in different ways. It's like things that are not, just in a real simple way, things that are not supposed to go together, like a younger man with an older woman or two women together or two men together. There's a lot of that going on in different ways in his films. But oftentimes it can't be consummated so there'll be the the tension there, and then it's not until Lady Oscar and his later films where we'll see same-sex kisses, for instance, or in his last film when um, Three Suits for the Twenty Sixth, where we have. So it's like in those later films, these queer tensions that sometimes don't always play out. Rodol never goes with the older woman, where the older woman desires. The younger man and Lola, I think the mother almost lives vicariously through Genevieve, but her relation to Roland is never consummated. But then in the later films, we have that where in three Suits for the the twenty six Yves Montant actually sleeps with his daughter. And it's okay.
2: How do you see the umbrellas of Cherbourg kind of fitting into this whole idea of the the queerness of his work?
6: You know, I think I have to give some credit, a lot of credit to um, an article by Philippe Colomb. He kind of threw that idea out. And I just thought it pulled out a pattern in his article that I think was really valid and and actually deserved a lot more attention. And and I think part of it is this idea of Roland as a melancholic character who, in both Lola and the Umbrellas of Sherberg, he never gets his girl. He goes for the women who can never be in love with him. And he doesn't go for the women who are in love, who love him, um, which is notably the mothers in the two films, because that's an unconventional relationship. So, and, and Coulomb is the one who pointed out this idea of potentially reading Rodin as a queer figure, as someone who cannot realize his non-normative sexual desire. And in, in the case of Lola and the Umbrellas of Sherberg, it's a desire for an older woman. But always going for the woman who's in love with someone else. It's like he's destined. It. It's it's like the drake relationship. The the fairy tale relationship is always doomed to failure because he's always loving someone who's not going to love him back. Which is kind of interesting because then later on in Lady Oscar, there's a scene where Andre, who loves Lady Oscar, but he's lower class, so their social class become kind of represents the queer relationship where the aristocrat, the non-normative relationship is an aristocrat being with a lower class person who is André, who is also her brother. So figuratively speaking, or he's her adopted brother, which again brings up the question of incest. And there's the scene where André wants to, you know, he expresses his love for her and she says, I can't do this. I can't be in a relationship with you. And he points out to her, you fell in love with Fersan, who's the great love of Marie Antoinette in the film, and you knew, or you were going, you were pursuing Fersan knowing that you could never have him because he's in love with Marie Antoinette. So he tells her, you're, you're kind of going after this impossible relationship that you can never have because you're afraid to act upon your desire for me in a way. So, even that comes back, but then, in Lady Oscar, Lady Oscar finally does have her union with Andre at the end of the film, although then he's killed <laughs> but so, I think it's interesting that you know that we have this Roland in both of those films, falling in love with women who are in love with someone else, thus dooming that heterosexual relationship to failure, and then not acting on a relationship that maybe would have made him happier with the older woman. But that's socially unacceptable.
2: Not trying to read too much into how Demi's art reflected his life, but do you see that whole idea of him being with Agnes Varda when maybe he wanted to be with someone else? Do you think that that might have played into some of these themes in his work?
6: It must have. I mean, that would be... That would be, oh, and and the one thing I wanted to do is to leave it open as well and use queer, maybe he loved Vardo. Maybe he also loved men. I don't, you know, I mean, I guess the issue with his private life is we don't really have anything. There's no biographical information on his personal life, so it's really hard to know exactly, you know, what was going on in his life. But you would think that all of these films that are, and, We know he died of of AIDS, and Agnes Varda did not get AIDS, as far as I know. So you would suspect that he had relationships with men. And it's hard to know, was he going back and forth? It's a difficult question. There's, like, references, you know, sometimes he'll, someone asked him about donkey skin, and he said, well, of course, every little girl wants to marry her father, kind of brushing off the, the incest in the film, which I think incest also functions as like a, a marker of queer desire. I don't think he believed in incest or anything. I think it was really these taboos, these taboo relationships, and always kind of figuring homosexual or queer relationships. He also, in an interview, is talked about trash by, is it Paul Morrissey? Anyone who's seen those films, they're not Exactly innocent films, and 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 Denis criticized the French film industry for not being as daring as the American film industry. So it would have been interesting to see what would have happened after the 1990s, because you can see in his later films, like starting with Lady Oscar, and then with Parking, he has same-sex kisses in those films, and then the acting out the incestuous relationship in his last film. It's it's like the things that weren't happening in his first films are happening in his latter films. So, but yeah, and you wonder how that, I mean, I think that's definitely a pertinent question. How did that possibly parallel his life? Or was he thinking about these questions? I mean, he obviously knew a lot about gay culture, queer culture, just in the references that he sometimes leaks out in interviews. And he has a lot of even, I I think there's some interesting readings of Les Demoiselles de Rochefort. This Philippe Colomb again is the first person that I know of that has talked about this reading Les Demoiselles de Rochefort in terms of queer couples, where we have the two sisters and we have the two carnies and George Shakiras and the other American dancer who both of them happen to be gay. There's definitely this coded language and coded images in, in many of his films.
2: Did he do just the two musicals, or were there other musicals in there?
6: He did Les, Les Demoiselles de Rochefort, Donkey Skin. I don't know if Donkey Skin is it a musical, is it an operetta, is it an opera? <laughs> I mean, because I think that's another thing. I think Demi is playing with all those genres to create something different. But he did uh, Room in Town, in Chambranville, chambre which is... You could call it a work-in-class opera or operetta. That's another one that integrates music. And and then the three suits for the 26th, um, having Yves Montand and um, Matilda May, there's a whole music, because the film is about them making a musical. So, I mean, he was obviously so fascinated with musicals, but over the course of my research, I think I've also seen... A lot of interesting and I would say convincing research that the musical tradition, there were a lot of queer writers and, and who were producing, um, these musicals. So already there's that kind of campy queer aesthetics of many of these musicals that also are appealing to Demi. So even when you look at what's influencing Demi, it's Visconti. Jean Cocteau, the American musical tradition, which um, is that Michael Tincombe argues, he talks about queer work. So we have all these queer writers and and producers of musicals. Of course, those are going to be marked by queer aesthetic, and and that's what I also think marginalizes him a bit when we think of the French New Wave, which can also be very masculine, playing on the hard boiled detective film film noir. Genres, whereas to me his his influences—not that he never draws from that—but it's mostly fantasy, you know, fairy tales, musicals, and the whole musical tradition, which usually gets perceived or people can perceive it as being uh, more feminine.
2: I found it interesting how you were making comparisons between Cherbourg and then Madame Dubois. Du Boulogne. Yeah, they butchered that,
6: right? <laughs> Les Dames du de Boulogne. Yeah,
2: and also the the what was it? The White Sheikh.
6: Right, uh, White Knights.
2: White Knights. Thank you.
6: Right by Visconti and every, yes, yeah, not
2: White Chic, which was uh, Fellini, I think. Right.
6: Well, and and I love the way that he makes these little references because, like, at the end of the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, it ends with this, this snow at an SO station and. And at the end of White Nights, uh, Mastroianni is walking by himself, I think, followed by a dog, and it's snowing towards an SO station, gas station. So it's almost like there's a wink right there to Visconti's film. And, um, and with, yeah, I love with reference to the Dame du Bois de Boulogne, um, the whole continuation of, um, so there's the young Cecilia, and her mother, but the mother of Lola, the, Cecile's mother in Lola is the woman in Les Dames du Bois de Boulogne who is sort of the Sleeping beauty or the, the Cinderella story. I mean, I guess what was kind of fun about doing the project is I started realizing, you know, seeing these fairy tale references, like Jean Cocteau worked on this screenplay for Les Dames du Bois de Boulogne and, and Cocteau was also interested in, in, in sort of fantasy genres. So I, I think it's not a coincidence that there's some plays on fairy tales in the Dames du Bois Boudonniens.
2: What do you see as being kind of the the fairy tale, either nods or, or what is uh, Shareport kind of pulling from?
6: You could say the film starts off as a fairy tale, but... It turns, and, and I guess that's the argument of the, of the chapter that it's it turns into melodrama. And I think there's little plays like Roland when Geneviève first meets Roland in the jewelry store. They refer to his his jewels, his as being something like Alibaba's cave. And then she wears the princess crown on, you know, in French, they celebrate um, Epiphany with a cake. And if you get the little nugget, if you get the little token, then you get to wear the crown in your queen or king of, for the day. So I think playing on that, you know, Demi loved Disney and he watched Disney films apparently over and over again. And. All of the Disney's, many of the Disney's, the the three, you know, the trilogy, the Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, and Cinderella, all have these themes of waiting. And so I kind of found it interesting, like, in Lola, you know, Michael walks in like a Prince Charming and, and saves his Cinderella girlfriend um, and is going to carry her off to El Dorado. And so there's this very fairy tale like feeling at the end of the film in Umbrellas of Cherbourg, there's a lot of plays on the irony. Roland is the apparent prince. He's the one with the money. He's the one with the Cadillac. But he's, he's really not Prince Charming after all. Then kind of playing with notions of what it means to meet your Prince Charming. Is it really the rich guy or is it the, ma- the mechanic that you're really in love with? Which is interesting because when you look at later fairy tale films in postmodern culture, there's a lot of that putting into question: is is the pompous prince really a prince? And I think Denis is already doing that with the Umbrellas of Cherbourg in particular. And I think it has to do with also the con- like the idea of the conventional fairy tale ending where you have the rich guy comes and saves the woman and of course it's very heterosexual. It's very especially I'm I'm not saying um there's actually a lot of diversity in, in fairy tale tradition, but but the popular what what we see as fairy tales like well, I don't know, I suppose Once Upon a Time is challenging with some of that, but but some of the like Sleeping Beauty Snow White and Cinderella, those tales that are so in your face in, in American and French culture as well. I think, in a lot of ways, to me, Umbrellas of Cherbourg is is putting that basic narrative into question.
2: Was this a challenging project for you? Had you written any kind of film theory before this, or had you stuck mostly to the fairy tales and the French?
6: It was. I mean, it was kind of scary for me to write it, and and not only that is I I do so much work in you know sixteenth seventeenth century literature. You know, you can ask me all about you know the religious wars. In, in France in in the sixteen early sixteen hundreds. But I always my background as a masters student before I started my PhD, I did a lot of twentieth century literature. I've always loved film and I, I I would read film books on the side, like for fun when I especially when I had more time as a PhD student. So it was it was challenging. Um, it was also kind of fun to get out of the early modern period and jump into something totally new for me, in some ways, at least as a researcher, not as someone who appreciates film, but actually writing about it. So, it it was kind of scary.
2: I'm just impressed that you could watch Umbrellas of Cherbourg that much and still be able to survive. It's such a sad film.
6: <laughs> I know. Almost every one of Demi's films is sad. I think the only film that is not sad, I mean, I suppose Three Seats for the 26th isn't super sad. But um, Lola seems happy, but then you have the continuation in Model Shop where we find out that Lola's been abandoned by Michael and she's in this very depressing cityscape of of Los Angeles that kind of reminds me of parts of Detroit. She's been totally destroyed and totally humiliated and, and, and kind of reduced to being an unpassionate, you know, there's no passion. She's not an artist anymore. And then you have the umbrellas. And then when you look at, uh, well, Donkey skin, it's ambiguous. I mean, there's that question at the end, would she rather have been with her father? Um, She's a little jealous of the fairy who's marrying her dad. The Pied Piper ends with um, Melius, the Jewish alchemist, being burned at the stake. But then there's the possibility, you know, the youth who's, and, and the artists who are going to travel to another city, I mean, there, it's not totally, I think there's always this kind of melancholy. I, I think what I I find about Demis films is I think overall, it's very melancholic. And even in Lady Oscar, and I think that's what impressed me in some ways about Lady Oscar, is even when the heroine acts upon her queer desire and and fulfills herself, then her partner is killed. Um, Andre is killed during the revolution. And the film ends with her in this joyous crowd who's just taken the best deal, looking up and, and just looking for Andre and he's dead. So there's, I think there's a lot of sadness in his films.
2: You know, until I read your book, I didn't realize that there was that tie between so many of his films. You know, you're talking about Model Shop and Lola and Cherbourg and just that there are these characters that cross from one to another.
6: Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and he did say in an interview that he initially, he wanted all of his films to come together. Because, you know, Honoré de Balzac, the, the French 19th century novelist, he called his work la comédie humaine or the human comedy or the human play. And so characters from not one novel might be secondary and one novel become primary in another. And there's all these connections between Balzac's novels. And, and Demi wanted to do the same thing with his films, which you can really see early on. I think he moves away from that as he develops. But I think definitely all of his earlier films, have they're, they're connected like that. Which also destabilizes the happy endings of films like Lola, where we think Lola's married her prince, she's in love, and then we follow up in the next film and she's a little bit like Cecile's mother, who if we trace her back to the Dame du Bois de Boudogne, she ended as sort of the the, the the Cinderella or sleeping beauty character taken away by her prince who we learn is gonna abandon her and she's a single mother. So there's always this instability or like all we can hope for is maybe a moment of happiness.
7: How did you come to be an actor? I, I was very young, 13, 14 years old. I rubavo i soldi a mia madre. I was told
4: in the um, money from my mother to go to the I, cinema.
7: Avete dei film con Gene Kelly o Fred Astaire, questi film musicali che amavo moltissimo, e avrei voluto diventare un attore ballerino come Gene Kelly o Fred Astaire. si è cambiato tutto. I was stolen the money from, to my mother
4: because I was, uh, in love of the musicals from Jim Carrey and Fred Astaire. So he wants to be, he, he was loving, he was dreaming to be an actor dancing and moving like them. But, uh, the, his life was changed
7: then. I have 13, 14 years old. Eh? You dreamt about being
2: an actor. Did you end up taking classes for that? So
7: I was in Milan. I know many, uh, Actor frequentavano the piccolo teatro di milano la scuola di giorgio Strehler. io ho fatto gli esami i do the, the examen, and eh, <laughs> mi hanno preso
4: he, he conduct uh, i mean the test to give access to the Il, uh, la Scuola di Milano, com'è la Scuola di Milano? Il piccolo Teatro di Milano. Yeah, il piccolo Teatro di Milano, who's been translating uh, the, the small theater in Milan and managed from, Giorgio uh, uh, Giorgio's trailer, which is, um, used to be one of the most, uh, important and very recognized,
7: uh, director directors in Italy. Theater director.
2: What were those first roles like for you?
7: <laughs> primo ruolo, primo ruolo, Valdavia. Diciamo che è stato un maledetto imbroglio di Germi, tratto da. come si chiama il testo? Cristina? Il pasticciaccio di Gadda. Emilio Gadda ha un film che si chiamava Er Pasticciaccio Brutto di via Merulana e, e, Germi ha fatto un film da lì e io sono il primo attore giovane, è stato il mio primo film importante.
4: Pietro Germi, is a, di, used to be a director in Italy, a very famous director in
7: Italy il registro di Divorce di, di Italia, Italia, Italia yeah. Italian Style. Divorce Italian Style.
4: Divorce Italian Style, the same director of that film that probably you know, Mike. And he called, uh, he called Nino for
7: quel pasticciaccio brutto. E il film si chiamava Un Maledetto in Imbro. Pietro Germi era il regista.
4: Pietro Germi called Nino for that, uh, knowing Nino from the trailer school, from the Piccolo di Milano. That was his first, uh, his first movie. It was in
2: I know one of your first roles, or one of your early roles, was uh, Escapade in Florence. What was it like working with Annette Funicello on that one?
7: <laughs> <laughs> it was a world's picture. Annette Funicello molto molto okay?
4: was, uh, was an amazing actress, but first of all, she was very nice
7: and after I discovered her was a pornographic actress I think because I shoot one scene in morning in the morning with her in, on the, in the bed completely naked or two, completely naked and then me touched me because the, the camera They say what do you call it? the sto parlando di un film che ho girato con Annette Funicello come lui mi chiedeva come si è trovato con Annette Funicello questo film l'ho fatto, è Annette Funicello questo film che non c'entra mi sono trovato nudo con lei nuda sotto il letto con lei che mi toccava perché da sopra le coperte trasparenti vedevano tutto it. so
4: it he is this cover and if, for Nicello um even like very um no they were naked in the bed in another film i believe uh, and uh they for a, a love for a love mo- a love uh scene uh, it's actually a a sex scene um, and uh, she under the under the blanket she's touching him she was touching him and she was very she has no problem to do that. So she was really comfortable in that as well.
7: No, but know. You know, you find very pleasure, I mean, very
4: placeful what she was doing under the, the blanket.
5: But was the first
4: time in my life. Yeah, that's the first time in, in his life that it he, actually happened that with it, um, I believe, Nino, I believe uh, during a movie. What would you consider you, your big breakout role?
7: Le parapluie de Cherbourg e il ruolo di Guy, protagonista maschile, con la regia di Jacques Demy. Vinse il festival di Cannes nel 1964. Basta, ti dico più niente. Quello mi ha dato un, 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 un famoso, sono son venito in America, fatto un film per la 20th Century Fox, un contratto con lui.
4: After the the de Shembo, which uh, won and can, you know that Mike, right? That was the the, the role for him. And after that, he got uh, a very important role in uh, the 20th Century Fox
7: in uh, in the United States. How did you come to be in um, La Père Bleu de Cherbourg? I ho ricevuto una telefonata personale di Jacques Denis, che regista delle de Che mi invitava mi ha invitato a Parigi per conoscermi. He got a phone call directly on his,
4: in, on his phone inviting him to go to Paris to meet him.
7: What were your memories of working on that film? Beh, de- ho dei ricordi bellissimi. Perché intanto il film l'ho amato moltissimo. Era un film tutto cantato, eh? Sì. Si. avons des enfants, ma fille François.
4: He has uh, uh, very beautiful memories about the film, and because he loved, he loved so much that film, that movie uh, during the movie and after seeing that movie, because it's a as probably you know, Mike, it was uh, it's an the entire film is uh, they they sing they sing during the film it's a it's a
7: musical singing movie. E poi c'era un'attrice bellissima, stupenda. Grande amica, etc. Catherine Deneuve.
4: And of course, the, he, he, met, uh, he met Catherine Deneuve on the movie, which is a, a beautiful, amazing actress and uh, a friend. They become a friend, very, very friend after that.
2: Were you actually singing on set or did you sing later and or sing earlier and lip-sync
7: to it? Prima di senti, ho capito tutto. Prima di iniziare il film, la ripresa del film, io avevo tutta la partitura musicale eh, e Michel Legrand, che era l'autore delle musiche, quasi sempre veniva ad aiutarmi a imparare tutte le cose eh, musicalmente perfette. Non era facile, era difficile. Almeno un mese con... eh, L'autore delle musiche, almeno un mese con lui e con Catherine Deneuve, Fin quando abbiamo iniziato il film sapendo a memoria perfettamente il film coi tempi giusti perché la registrazione del, dei temi musicali era perfetta e quindi anche i tempi musicali erano perfetti su, come nel montaggio del film.
4: As you probably can understand, it was a very difficult movie because they, the Michel Legrand was the author of the, 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 the music and the songs. And they, they got, uh, they got involved in a month, uh, uh, about 30 days of realces, music and, and singing reals, Him, the author and, uh, uh, Catherine Deneuve, because, mm-hmm. and after that, they arrived on the set knowing exactly all the timing, the timing of the old scenes. And that was, uh, was very difficult at the beginning to, uh, memorize everything. And after that the movie was uh, done like that
7: nel film nel film la voce non era mia eh nella mia ne quella di katrin era le, le voci dei cantanti okay? okay the voices
4: of the of the singers was not uh, nino and Katr- uh, katrin they was dubbed from the, the real singers but they the singing, yes for the singing they should know exactly the time
7: what was it like going to Cannes with quel film questa una grande emozione ha vinto il festival di Cannes una cosa pazzesca io mi ricordo incont- io il mio primo film che ho fatto seguivi bene <coughs> l'ho fatto con la regia di Pietro Germi, e me l'ha detto in quando il film di Jacques demi eh, andò a Cannes e vinse eh, il festival di Cannes tornando in albergo. <laughs> Germi mi fermò dietro, camminando. Mi fermò Germi e mi ha detto: accidenti, non hai vergogna di aver fatto un film francese che l'hanno premiato, perché lui fece invece un film italiano bellissimo, ma hanno premiato il film francese di Jacques Guy. E quindi Germi non mi rivolse la parola per due anni. Of
4: course it was amazing. The film that film won the Plum the d'Or uh, and Cannes, and uh, everybody knows him after that. So Pietro Germi was um, the, the, the first director that he worked with. We told you before. Jacques Demi was the other uh, the director of the, the one one in Cannes. Pietro Germi was there as well. Was in Cannes as well um, with another film in competition. And uh, uh, because Nino won with that film, Pietro Germi doesn't
7: talk to Nino for two years. See. Si. Pietro Germi And of
4: course Nino was very sad because that, that Pietro Germi was the first director I worked with and he, he was totally in love with him. But because the, he, he, Nino was so got uh, uh the the role in, in that film that is actually won, the, the Plum Door, that, that year, Pietro Germi was very disappointed and he didn't talk to him for two years.
2: I had read that uh, Jacques Demy um, had offered Nino to come back for the Young Girls of Roquefort.
7: Is that true? The demoiselle de Rochefort. Yes, si, è vero, è vero, è vero. it's true, true. That's it's true. I've done television, I've ruined it. That's true, but
4: because... Uh, um, raccontami. me, I remember because I was engaged with Renzo and e Lucia, right? Yes, I
7: was ero impegnato. I didn't even accept ma il mio agente mi ha detto devi fare questa cosa in televisione che ti darà un gran successo in i tuoi episodi un successo molto italiano però io, io non ho potuto fare quel film di Jack De Ni guarda sarei, mi sarei tol- tagliato le vene guarda vabbè tutto pura it's
4: true it's true that Jack De Ni asked for Nino for that role but at that time Nino was uh, was about to sign for a TV movie which is, uh, actually in, gives a very, 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 uh, large, um, popularity in Italy. And, uh, but he said he's right now going back. He said, I would, I would have not, I would have not decided to go for TV instead to go for that movie. It was beautiful. La colpa è
7: sempre degli agenti.
4: And it's, it was the, the a fault, the fault was of his agent at that time. Uh, that he convinced him to, to sign for the TV, for the TV, because it was a very, a uh, very good contract in terms of money. And, uh, he said the, the fault is always of the agent. And if you, if you allow me, Nino, I would say I'm your agent, but I suggest you everything, we suggest you everything, but at the end, it's your choice. Okay.
7: Senti, Mike, you? 44.
4: I'm 44 as well. And, Mike, I believe you are two days uh, uh, older than me.
2: Are you, uh, what, April 4th? I'm April 2nd.
4: Yes, I'm April
2: si.
7: 4th, The same You si, si, si,
4: <laughs> The two of us, if you sum our age, we, we go for his age, which actually is not true because he's younger. What was your experience working
2: on Massacre Time, uh, Confucius, uh, Conf-
7: why? Uh, <laughs>
4: how
2: do
7: you know about that
2: film oh it's a very popular spaghetti western
7: yes because at that, at that time uh, western italian western was very popular and so I I, I I make this western so, so only for this it was <laughs> A shit film. <laughs> Terrific. I think I understood that
4: one. Yeah, uh, he, he said that it's not, I mean, uh, coming from the other ones that we, we just talked about, he said that he did it because just because it was really, really popular in Italy, that kind of film, and uh, of course, just because a lot of people and they didn't know that it has actually become uh, a, a, I mean... Um, how can you say uh, movies that will be known in, in the rest of the world especially in the United States
2: we recently lost bud spencer what were your experiences working with him
7: oh bud spencer bud spencer i io ho amato molto bud spencer abbiamo fatto un film due film insieme cos'era il film che ho fatto con bud spencer c'era anche della natura americana un cinese cos'era Un esercito di cinque Five Men Army it was the title di this picture. I, I, un esercito di cinque uomini. C'era Bud Spencer. Siamo diventati molto amici, molto, molto, molto amici. Una persona meravigliosa, Bud Spencer. Prima che morisse, un mese prima o due mesi prima, andai a trovarlo eh, a casa sua Via Archimede Forse di più di due mesi prima, forse sei mesi prima. That a in Spencer was a friend a very good friend
4: of him uh, he he went to to meet him he went to his house in Rome uh, six months ago um, which is actually I believe seven months ago because it was six months before he passed away they did a, a movie together which is uh, uh, in a of five I believe he's five, five, like five, yeah, five, five men, five men, five
7: Five in Yeah, I
4: do And uh, he has amazing memories from his, his buddy, Bud Spezio.
2: What was it like working with Bradley Metzger on Camille 2000?
7: Uh, it was, uh, I don't know, it was a pornographic film. Yeah. But uh, the director was very good, I think. But uh, I don't
2: like this picture. I've asked you about so many of your movies that you've done. What have been some of your favorites over the years? The de Cherbourg. Definitely that.
4: The Umbrella
2: of Cherbourg. What are you working on these days? What are you doing now?
4: Cosa stai facendo adesso, Nino? In questo momento? Sì. Yeah. He's working in the theater. He just, I mean, I can I can say that, and you you can say that. I know, I
7: know very well what he's doing right now. Top crime, lì for, for uh, crime. Ah, sport crime, quella cosa sportiva, quello carino, sì. Che facciamo Sì. So,
4: he just come back from uh, Switzerland, uh, Switzerland actually. Uh, he played a main role uh, in uh, in, this mo- in this movie that it probably become a, a a show, a TV show, a serious TV show, which is is a, a very old He's he's played a very old singer, uh, rock singer, which is, uh, um, uh, which is involved with the story with his his son uh, and uh, the family.
7: Poi mi devo allenare moltissimo perché devo avere un fisico eccezionale, perché devo fare delle cose sportive difficilissime, capito? Sport crime is the serious, and
4: he starts the movie on the wheelchair. Very, you know, very sick in a wheelchair. And, and uh, at the end of the, ser- the series, thanks to the sports, thanks to stuff like that, he, he, he will be training a lot, even for the realties. he's training a lot to... Um, because at the end of the movie, at the end of the, the series, the series, the, the episodes, he will be able to stand up.
7: Però di non morire.
4: And he was, uh, he was thinking, I hope I'm not going to die before the end of that.
2: I've had a real pleasure talking to you, and I don't want to take up more of your time because this has been uh,
7: terrific. No, stato meraviglioso parlare con lui. It was like, a
4: pleasure, This uh, pleasure. pleasure. We look forward to to hear from you when uh, when you. If you, might, please can you tell us when you when you're going to broadcast uh, this one and uh, we will uh we more than glad to to hear that to
7: see it too conoscerlo quando vengo a Roma e lui sarà a Roma vorrei conoscerlo perché è una bella persona Mike is in Detroit Mike at uh, Detroit um,
4: Mike if you have any chance to go to Rome please let let us know because Nino wants to meet you.
2: We'll do I, I would love to get over there someday.
4: Va bene,
7: mi fa, sarà un enorme piacere, va bene. Dagli un bacio da parte mia. A, a, big, a big hug and kiss from him. Oh, molto Grazie. <laughs>
2: We are back, and we are talking about umbrellas of Cherbourg. So, as you heard with Mr. Kessel Novo, this really put both he and Catherine Deneuve on the map. Now, I know Deneuve had made a few films before this, as had he. She had worked with Roger Vadim, and I think they even had a kid together. But yeah, it was Demi who really helped make her career. And then after this, she was off to the races. I think it was Repulsion the next year and just on and on and on. And I read a really interesting article, and Rob, you'll appreciate this, comparing the roles that she did with Demi to the roles that she did with Bunuel and just the way that both of these directors, I don't want to say the directors used her, but more the way that she used the directors and just that she could play these Really different characters in both of these filmmakers' films. I mean, the the softness of Geneviève versus the kind of hardness of uh, what is it, Tristiana? I mean, just amazing to see the differences between the roles that she would give both of these.
0: Directors. I mean, if I was going to take the three films that I know that I've watched, which would be *Umbrella* of *Sheerborg*, uh, I haven't seen any other ones that she's done with uh, Demi, and then go to *Belle de Jour* and then to *Tristiana*. It is like, it's like the evolution, you know. It's, um, you know, sort of sweet girl to kind of sweet wife, but doing dark stuff to like I'm fucking angry and dark and. <laughs> Set the world on fire, Tristiana. So it's it's interesting to see that progression. And that's only six years between Umbrellas of Cherbourg and um, Tristiana, which is in 70.
3: Well, I, th- I think it reflects the different directors here. Uh, Demi is always bittersweet. And Boonwell, I could see Boonwell seeing Catherine Deneuve as being something beautiful that he wanted to make ugly or something <laughs> along or, those lines.
0: Or just seeing sort of how the you know, the sinister can live inside the sweetness kind of thing. Like yeah, you've got this yeah. beautiful wrapper, but inside it's poison. You
3: know? Yes.
0: Very much <laughs> so. Yeah. It. That's very much Bunuel and that's why I love yeah.
2: him. And it's amazing. I mean, she has not stopped. I mean, she just keeps going. Uh, you know, she's still working today. I tried to get an interview with her and her, uh, rep said that she's currently shooting something and yeah, she's, She's been working steady since the, what, early 60s. So it's just amazing that she just keeps carrying on. You know, she was just in, uh, well, 2015, so just. But in the latest Van uh, Dormiel film, A uh, Brand New Testament, we talked about Dormiel. Um, well, actually, I mentioned Toto uh, the Hero earlier, and we talked about him on our uh, Toto episode, and we talked about Mr. Nobody. And, yeah, she just... Uh, doesn't stop which I, I think is fantastic she's kind of this grand dame of the french cinema and to see the roles that she's taken over the years i mean one film that a lot of people don't talk about that i really like is called the creatures which was actually a varda film and uh, another one that she did with Michel piccoli and uh I mean, it's just this kind of surrealist, bizarro thing that, I mean, she she wasn't afraid to take very challenging roles. I mean, even looking at the ones that she did with, uh, well, Don't Touch the White Woman. I mean, an amazing role in that as well.
0: And she's one of the few from that era that's still working I mean because I mean I've seen interviews with both um, I mean to me the other two that kind of stick out in my mind and I know Ken's probably got a laundry list of leading ladies of French film he knows much more than I do but uh, I mean I think of people like uh, Jean Moreau or uh, Anna Karina, and it's like they've fallen off the map I only see them in interviews or they get pulled out for some you know awards honor at some place that wants to honor you know French film in the early 60s but you're right I mean she just continues to work and uh, was just reminded, of course, of the hunger recently uh, with uh, the passing of uh, David Bowie this year.
3: Isabella Johnny, I think, gets a lot of work, and though she came a little bit later than Deneuve, uh, she fits into that Grand Dame uh, image as well. Have you guys ever seen uh, one called Love Songs from
2: 2007? No. It's actually kind of a neat companion piece to uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg. It's another musical. It's very much an adult musical, which is kind of fun. Uh, It's A lot of it focuses on a threesome. I mean, I think it's really purposefully speaking to Umbrellas because it's divided into three parts, the departure, the absence, and the return, which is exactly like Umbrellas. And it even stars Deneuve's daughter that she had with uh, Mestrian, Mestre and Tony so it, it definitely has these echoes and um, I, I found it to be terrific I never would have come across the film had I not seen it down at the Maryland Film Festival I think in 2008 and it was one that uh, John Waters introduced he had seen it and really enjoyed it and introduced it to the the audience down there I would really encourage people to track it down I think it's a, a, an overlooked or underappreciated film at least in my circle of friends and I, I would say that more people should check it out And I haven't seen, I tried to watch Lola, and I had a hard time getting into it, and then I also tried to see Young Girls of Rockford couldn't get into that movie, and I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was that it was more, to me, a traditional uh, musical insofar as that there was dialogue and then the songs interspersed. And I guess I was looking for more of a kind of, you know, umbrellas part two. Um, but it, I assume, uh, Ken, that you made it through both of those. And what are your opinions of those films?
3: Well, oh, Lola is very casual, very breezy. It fits much more into the new wave style of film at, at that time. And I could see how it would seem like a trifle thing, you know, uh, uh, it just seems it just seems to be about characters who really don't know what to do with themselves, so it doesn't seem really focused, but I but that's the point of it. I have over the course of the years really become very fond of it, and especially how it lays out Demi's original plan to have these characters intersecting in each of the movies. It's a fundamental film. Uh, it's got several references. So Umbrellas of Cherbourg, there's a young lady in the film named Cecile, for example. She runs away from home. He's a note with her mother saying she's run off to Cherbourg to live with her father. And early in Umbrellas of Cherbourg, Genevieve uses the name Cecile as an alibi to go out with Guy. Uh, there's all kinds of tiny little threads that run throughout these movies. So I've begun to really appreciate Lowell. I've seen it four or five times now. And Young Girls of Rochefort, I can see how off-putting it is because it's just twee to the max. But I'm telling you, despite that, it's become one of my favorite movies of all time by anybody. It it is to ecstasy what Umbrellas of Cherbourg is to melancholy. And that was his stated purpose. He said when he made uh, Cherbourg, he wanted to make people cry. When he made Rochefort, he wanted people to sing and dance out out of the theater and for me it has finally gotten there i laugh at the movie i think it's ridiculous but i laugh at myself for laughing at it i just it's just a wonderful film
2: and have you ever seen um what they call lola in la aka
3: the model Shop? model shop yeah that's the fifth film and those first five films all cross-reference each other and that is a completely different animal it's it's dour i think the first five films were made between 1960 and 1969. And I do think that in a way they do reflect the decade of the 60s uh, in various different ways. And in 1969, things are pretty dire. And uh, the Vietnam War, it's like Guy has to go to Algeria. Uh, the, The major male character in the film in Model Shop is getting his call up to go to Vietnam. That's reflected there. At the end of Lola, Michelle, the love of her life, the guy who impregnated her seven years prior, comes back. It's like it's a miraculous, happy ending. And in Model Shop, she tells how he left her for the female protagonist in the second movie, Bay of Angels. So, you know, once again, it's that idea that I mentioned earlier that these characters are in flux. And uh, I think that that's one of the fascinating constants in, in those first five films. Anyhow, I had no idea
2: until I saw the documentary about Demi. That's on the, uh, the criterion disc that Harrison Ford was in line for that role in the model shop. The one that Gary Lockwood eventually ended up with. And I've, Found it to be very charming that Harrison Ford would actually go on camera and talk about this role and talk about working with Demi and getting, you know, really into the the part and all this stuff, which was a role that eventually the studio had, I think, said, no, you're
3: not going to be in this and you really have no future in Hollywood. (laughs) So he wanted, uh, the idea was that he enjoyed working on it and he wanted to be in the film? He
2: wanted to be in the film, and I was amazed that he took the time. He actually seemed like he shot uh, this himself, a a segment that he ended up giving to to Varda to make this uh, documentary about Demi. So it was just like, wow, okay, that he would take the time to do that. I I found to be uh, very genuine and very nice of Mr. Ford to do. I mean, he's now like, you know, he always seems to be the crankiest man in Hollywood.
3: So it was the studio's decision that he not be in the film? Correct. Okay.
0: Because right. he was just, what, a uh, a set laborer then? He was just building sets, right, Carpentry?
2: I mean, this was 69 that the movie came out, yeah. and... So, yeah, this was uh, probably right around getting straight came out, which I think ended up being his first official on screen appearance. He might have had a role as a bellhop in something before that. I can't remember. But yeah, this was way earlier in his career. This is before he had really had any sort of a break.
0: I mean, my first memory of him, sort of the earliest memory of him, was in uh, the role in The Conversation, which is what, 73? He tells a
2: story about he and Jack Demi even going to a real live model shop and having to buy the cameras and having this woman there. And then they ended up in this documentary showing the scene that he's kind of talking about that, that ended up being in the film, where the model's just like, well, I can do this. I can pose this way. I can pose that way. And he, Ford and Demi were just like, eh, I don't know. You know? <laughs> we don't really know what's going on here. So, okay. But yeah, and then uh, at least Demi has a good, uh, or he had a sense of humor about it because he ended up calling it the model flop because it was his first foray into Hollywood cinema and he ended up just it completely tanked and that was unfortunately one of many films that ended up tanking for him after a while i'm sure ken that you know this he kind of became a director for hire and did some interesting and unusual films like uh lady oscar and these kind of things where it just didn't necessarily feel like him it wasn't necessarily a passion project but right he needed
3: to pay the bills i will say this uh recently the british film institute sight and sound uh Ran a poll to determine what the most neglected movies are. They reached out to seventy five different critics and they came up with a list of seventy five films that they considered that these critics considered the most neglected, overlooked films of all time. And uh, Motoshop is on that list. So for you know so it may provoke you into seeing it. I've seen it recently. And I quite, you know, I quite enjoy it. It does fit into the uh, canon pretty well. But it is really decidedly moodier and darker than most of Demi's films. So is there anything else we want to talk about Umbrellas of
0: Cherbourg? The whole idea of the guy working in the auto uh, repair in the gas station, and he's in love with a girl who's got a little more money than him. Um, it's this uh, Billy Joel did he oh yeah <laughs> like did he did he think of using this concept or was this sort of a concept that was already in the zeitgeist and uh, so i don't know yeah.
2: well it's interesting because i think we might have talked uh on one of the few episodes where we've covered um Uh, david goodis films or books the movies based on david goodis books but that's kind of right out of the um, um, uh, moon in the gutter story as well which was one of goodis's more popular books in in france where you had uh, that one was adopted uh, or sorry adapted with um, that one was with gerard Depardieu as a stevedore and you know he's got this girl who keeps coming down to you know the bad part of town and um you know kind of showing her a good time and but yet he knows that she's basically slumming it and everything so yeah it's it's very much that uptown girl uh story again so yeah a good call on that one rob i i I didn't even think about that one
0: yeah and then um i don't have a huge collection of lp records i have enough uh, vinyl. But a few years ago, I picked up a copy of the um, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, and uh, it's a beautiful edition. It uh, was 1964, of course, and it comes in the middle with an eight-page booklet, which is uh, the lyrics for the side A and side B. So it's kind of cool, and it's got some nice photos and everything. And um, it is the mono edition that was put out by Philips. So if uh, you're a fan, and uh, I'm sure that you can probably get the soundtrack now on iTunes or you know some other format. But if uh, but if you have a love of the vinyl, um, it it is a beautiful edition. So I I Uh, recommend it.
3: Rob, I'm curious about the lyrics that they would print. Uh, Is it French trans? Is it English translation of the French? lyrics slash dialogue or were the words written specifically for the songs as songs?
0: It is uh appears to be uh what's interesting is I open the book and uh it's sort of split down the middle. So one side is side A and the other is side B and it tells you what scene and then and then what people and then it goes into uh, the various uh, lyrics. So it's in French in one column, and then it goes to English. So you can go back and forth between the two. So I guess it's between what your what your ear hears, and then uh, what the translations would be. So uh, it appears to start off with um, in the you know uh, in the gas station. So I, I know they can't fit the whole thing onto one record because you can only put about. Uh, 22, 23 minutes aside, but it's uh, obviously a very condensed, uh, cut-down version. So, but it does have, as Mike noted, the big uh, the big hits that people know from the film.
3: This is out of left field a little bit, but I've been thinking recently about the ending of Umbrellas of Scherberg and two similar endings in two films that were released within a couple years of Umbrellas of Sherborg that both came before it. That's Splendor in the Grass, uh, there's a relationship between the Natalie Wood character and Warren Beatty. She goes back to see him after this great romance has fallen apart, and it's pretty similar. And then Lolita, when Humbert Humbert goes back to see Lolita to give her some money. And they're very different, and yet they have the same context so Well, in Lolita, it's more of a one-way love relationship, but he totally comes apart at the end of that film when he goes and sees Lolita and her husband. It's just, just something that occurred to me, that that happened within a relatively short period of time, that you would have these three major movies that would have a similar premise for the endings.
2: Well, it's always interesting to see those kind of rhymes between different films. And you always ask yourself, especially when they come in quick succession, is there something else going on here? And I can't necessarily think of something. I mean, 1964, I'm not really sure. I mean, obviously we're dealing with, uh, uh, you know, loss and everything. I mean, because the, the Algerian conflict wasn't that, much earlier than this film came out so i can see that kind of playing into it but as far as the u.s these
3: oh, uh, vietnam was underway uh there's separation involved in that uh, and humbert was more or less a sociopath so i'm sure there was some of that going on too
2: all right guys let's go ahead we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show
3: welcome to central high where the rich kids really get away with murder this year, the in-crowd has a real problem. There's a new kid named David who doesn't like to be pushed around. He lives by the golden rule. Do one to others and make it permanent. Welcome to Central High. You're just in time for a massacre. Massacre at Central High. Rated R,
2: under
0: 17, not admitted without parent.
2: That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Renee Daedler's massacre at Central High. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Rob and Ken. Rob, what has been keeping you off of the
0: streets these days? Well, busy, busy, doing well with uh, all that I got going on. Uh, free Press, Detours podcast every Thursday morning. You can get that. That is the Detroit Free Press, the uh, the major daily here in our fair city. Uh, talk to all kinds of folks, uh, sort of give you an idea of what's going on for the weekend and uh, maybe introduce you to some stuff you don't know about or people you'd like to know more about. And, uh, of course, I have my uh, company, which is Patronicity uh, Crowdfunding. So we do a lot of community uh, engagement work, projects and stuff like that. Just opened an office in Massachusetts, and I have been traveling quite a bit. I was just at a conference in uh, Minnesota, so... Things are busy. Things are good. Um, keep pushing the Orbit book. And I have a record label that's starting in the fall. And, of course, I hope to tell you more about that soon.
2: Very cool. And where can people keep up with you, sir?
0: I would say the key one, if you're not on the uh, the, the social media stuff, is to go to RobStMary.com. I know it's really exciting, right? But that's it. robstmary.com Uh Most of the stuff about uh, podcasts, uh, books, things like that, and all the stuff I've been working on.
3: And how about you, Kenny, baby? What's keeping you busy? I think I'm going to be applying for a position as Rob's assistant. He's so busy. But aside aside from that application, I've been settling into retirement and I'm still making music with my band. I've written a play and I've started on two other plays. Aside from that, just taking it as it comes and uh, enjoying retirement. Yeah, I saw you uh, had a little travel in there, too, sir, with your retirement. I've been to Spain a couple times, went to Europe a few years ago, but yeah, I went to twice I went to Spain within a six-month period. It's a long story.
2: <laughs> well, thank you, fellas, for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Be sure to stop by the website, projection-booth.com, for more information about our discussion, as well as a link over to our Patreon page, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode of The Projection Booth, as long as I'm not running late. That's just one more way that you can help The Projection Booth take over the world.
1: If it takes forever, I will wait for you for a thousand summers. me till I One by one, and then the time will come when all the waiting's done. The time when you return and find me here and run straight to my way. touch you and watch what happens, one, someone, who can look in your eyes and see Let him find you and walk.